And we find ourselves in, far, in, in a part five, part five, called the pace of work. The pace of work. So just to give you a heads up, we uh, await one more sermon in this series, part six. And then uh, for the next oh, maybe six to eight weeks, we'll be doing a sermon series on the book of Philippians. Uh, I've entitled that sermon series, The Fight for Joy. Because uh, all of us, I think, in life have to fight from time to time to keep joy in our life. And I can think of no better book than the book of Philippians to help us learn how to find joy in every circumstance. So that's where we're going. Uh, This morning we are in part five, The Pace of Work. I trust that you're there in the book of Exodus. And so let's pray, and we'll jump right into uh, this sermon this morning. So if you would uh, bow your heads and pray with me. One more time. Father, we do pray your blessing upon the reading and the hearing and the teaching of your word. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought and clarity of voice and that, Holy Spirit, you would speak through your inspired word to your born-again people through the blood of Christ. We ask that uh, you would uh, keep us from the evil one, from the distractions of uh, this afternoon or of the next work week or whatever might be on our hearts and minds that would tend to distract us from hearing your word because what we hear when we open the Bible is your very word to us and you have much to say to us. This morning in particular as we think about the pace of our work week and the pace in which we do work and the, nece- the necessity of, of regular rest, would wife when she was, whoa, there I am, good. However, my wife, when she was younger, uh, did have an opportunity to go to the Indy 500 Live, and she said as much as she doesn't like racing or anything of the sort, she said it was actually a really cool experience, and it's very loud and pretty neat, and so uh, one of these days, maybe I'll make it down the road to the Indy 500. Uh, The reason we're talking about the Indy 500 is because there is a special car that the Indy 500 and and other races as well, I'm pretty sure, uh, utilize. And it's a race that is actually not running around the track. It's not a race car that's in the race per se, but it's a different kind of car. Does anybody know the kind of car that I'm talking about? Take a guess. It's the pace car. That's right. You guys know your cars better than I do. It's called the pace car. Now, I actually had to do a little research to figure out what the pace car was. So that goes to show you how much I don't know about racing. But I discovered that the point of the pace car is that the pace car enters into the track during a time of caution, maybe during a time of of danger when there's a a piece 
uh, of an, uh, an obstruction possibly on the track. And so the pace car is called out. And as I understand it, please cor- correct me later, later if I'm wrong, it goes onto the track and it, it essentially limits the speed of the competing cars. And so all of the cars then file behind this pace car and the pace car sets the the pace, right? It sets the pace, and it sets the pace at a significantly lower pace than the cars had been running previously. And it does so, and they go round and round and round until uh, the debris or whatever obstruction is on the road is cleared off. And then after that, the pace car goes away, and so it sets the pace. I also learned that you can't pass the pace car while the pace car is on the road. That would kind of make sense because it would defeat the, the, the point. And I also learned that you can't pass other cars while the pace car is going, which, forgive me for being a skeptic of racing, that just seems kind of boring to go around and round and round. But I guess it's a, it's a necessity. But ne- either way, this pace car, this idea of a pace car, kind of was of interest to me. Because we're going to be talking about the pace of our work week. We're going to be talking about the pace of, at which we work. And I want to ask a, a simple question. Do you think God cares about the pace of our work? Do you think he cares about how much we work? Do you think uh, the, the other question or the, the flip side of that question is, do you think that God cares that we get rest? Does he care how much we work? And then does he care that at certain times and for certain reasons we slow down the pace of our work? Does God care about the pace of our work? Well, I would suggest to you that he does care about the pace of work, because what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at several Old Testament passages. We're going to take a look at several passages that deal with this Old Testament idea of Sabbath. Now, some of you may be familiar with this idea of Sabbath, and some of you may have skewed or wrong ideas about what the Sabbath was. But in the Old Testament, this idea of Sabbath essentially served as a a pace car. It essentially served to slow down the pace of work for one day a week for God's Old Covenant people for a myriad of reasons. And we're going to take a look at some of those reasons as to why God mandated a day of rest in the Old Testament, why he mandated that the pace of work, at least for one day, slow down. And so we're going to take a look at some, what I would call, Sabbath principles, some Sabbath principles that show us the benefit of getting regular rest, the necessity and the benefit uh, for you and for me as a worker for actually taking a day or two off and resting from our work. Now, before we do that, I just want to give a, a quick caveat. As we look at these scriptures, what we see is that for God's old covenant people, for uh, the nation of Israel under the old covenant at that time, that this was mandatory. It was not optional. That God mandated on the seventh day, that was the Sabbath, the, the Saturday, to essentially for them to not work. We're going to see that in a bit. But what I don't believe and what I don't want you to hear is that this Sabbath law is somehow in effect for us in a specific way. That is, is the church commanded to keep the Old Testament Sabbath? Some people would argue yes, but I would, I would suggest to your uh, understanding and to your research that the answer is no, that the Old Testament principle of resting on the seventh day, which would be Saturday for us, is no longer applicable directly to the new covenant church. Uh, It's not a Christian Sabbath in a sense. We oftentimes think that somehow Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath. Uh, What we find out interestingly enough is that we're going to look at the Ten Commandments because this Sabbath rest is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth, I believe. But of all the Ten Commandments, 
All of them are repeated in the New Testament, given under the new covenant for the church today, except for one. Do you want to guess which one it is that's not repeated? It's the Sabbath. And so I would commend to you that what we see as we look at this day of Sabbath in the Old Testament is not something that we have to, per se, obey strictly, but it serves as a principle. It gives us some principles by which we, as the church, God's new covenant people, can learn the necessity of what I would call regular days of rest. So with that being said, I want us to see four principles. So if you're taking down notes, you see them on the screen, jot these four principles down. Four principles that we learn from the day of rest in the old covenant, the Sabbath. And the first one is simply this, rest. Rest reminds us of our place in the world. What rest was to do for Israel and what it's supposed to do for us today in principle is that it reminds us of our place in the world. That is, it reminds us that we are not God, that God is God, that he created everything, and that we are not him and that he is not dependent upon us. So let's look now at Exodus chapter 20. That's the first place we're going to start, Exodus chapter 20. And so if you have your Bibles open, it's page 60 in your pew Bible. And we're going to look at the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, is when God first reveals this Sabbath law. So this is what God says, and I want us to keep an eye on the reasoning for it. Notice the the prohibition for work, but there's a reason. God gives us an explicit reason in verse 11 why his people in the Old Covenant were to take one day off. Verse 8, God says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreign foreigner residing in your towns. In verse 11, we see the reason. Why was Israel supposed to take one day off? For, for, giving us the reason. This is the reason for in six days, The Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, summarizing the reason, therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. And so what then is the reason, the first reason given in the midst of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, for a day of rest? It simply is, did you catch it? For in six days, God made the heavens and the earth and he rested. And so what we see is that God commanded his Old Testament people to take a day of rest to remind them of the creation, to remind them of the creation order so that every seventh day would be Saturday, so that every Saturday they were to put down their tools and they were to stop working, and in doing, the, and in doing so they were to remember On this day, God rested. And on the days that I had been working, that, well, God created me and he created everything in six days. It was to remind them again and again, week after week, about their place in the world and about God's place in the world. It was to remind them that they weren't the center of creation. Life was not all about them. It was about God who created them. And in not working, they were to remember this divinely created order of God in his place and us in ours. God being independent and us as human beings being dependent. The great English politician, you may be familiar with him. His name is William Wilberforce. You may be familiar. There was a movie uh, about him uh, just a few years back, an excellent movie. He was an English politician who uh, essentially lobbied and led to the end or the abolishment of slavery and the slave trade in the English 
Channel, the English, uh, the country of England. And so he, uh, one day, as he was talking about this day of rest, I think he got it right when he said this. He said, Blessed be to God for the day of rest and religious occupation, wherein, catch this, wherein earthly things assume their true size wherein earthly things assume their true size. Because isn't that true when we are working day after day that we get so involved in our work, we get so involved in what it is that we're doing, and things can often become misproportioned. They can be blown out of proportion, and we can begin to think that our life and what we're doing is a little maybe more significant uh, than it actually is. And we work, and things just kind of get blown out of proportion, and they get bigger than they should. And William Wilberforce was right. He said, when we take a day of rest, we recognize that everything we've been doing in our labor, it kind of, it, it kind of assumes its true size because we step back from it, and we realize, okay, it's not as bad, it's not as hard, it's not as important as I think it was. And so I want to ask you a question today. Are there some earthly things in your life, maybe specifically as it relates to your work, that need to assume their true size in your life? Maybe it's a challenging client that you have at work. Maybe it's a critical boss who's always on you, never seeming to give you a break. Maybe it's just a job that's monotonous and boring and you have a a, a hard time keeping engaged. Maybe it's the loss of some kind of financial account. Whatever it may be, in all of our lives, things can kind of get out of proportion, and we need regular days of rest to help us kind of remember our place in the world and to bring, as Wilberforce says, certain things to help them assume their true size in life. So what's the first reason for days or a day of regular rest? Well, we see from Exodus 20 that it's simply to allow us to kind of get our place back in the world, to to reorient ourselves to God and his creation and the significance that we play in it. It reminds us of our place in the world, but it doesn't just remind us of our place in the world. Secondly, it reminds us of something else. It reminds us that God provides for us. That, I think, is the second reason why God gave his people of old a mandatory day of rest. It was to help show them and remind them that though they labor and though he provides through their labor, he, God, is the one ultimately providing for them, not the labor itself. And so flip backwards in your Bible to Exodus 16. And so if you're in Exodus 20, just flip back a little bit. In Exodus 16, which is actually before the Sabbath law was given, before the giving of the Ten Commandments, we see this Sabbath principle, this this necessity of a day of rest, even before it was commanded in a scene as Israel was wandering around in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16, verses 28 through 30, we see Israel was wandering around in the wilderness, and they were hungry. And so what did God provide? Do you remember what God provided in the desert? What church? Provided manna for them. And so here in Exodus 16, God provides manna for them, and he gives them a principle. He gives them a rule. He essentially says, I want uh, Moses, uh, tell them to gather for six days. They can gather the manna every morning they get, and they, and, they, and they eat what they need for that day. But then he commands them on the seventh day to do what? To rest. He tells them to rest on the seventh day. He tells them to not collect the manna. And if you know anything about Israel, in particular in their early days, you know that they were stubborn and rebellious and hard-hearted. So what do you think they did? God says, gather six days, and on the seventh day, don't gather any. And so they're thinking, 
well, if I don't gather any on the seventh day, what am I going to eat on the seventh day? So what do you think they did? Did they gather on the seventh day? You think some of them did? Yes, they did. They gathered some on the seventh day. They disobeyed God. And so this is what God told them. Exodus 16, verses 28 through 30. This is God's response to them. Verse 28, Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Speaking both to Moses and and the nation as a whole. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, now notice this, that is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for how many days, church? For two days. That's why he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. And so what I want us to see is some connectivity here. Why then were they supposed to rest on the seventh day? Well, they were supposed to rest because they were supposed to trust God to provide enough for them in the six days, right? Notice, God doubled what they collected on the sixth day for the sixth day and for the seventh day because they were supposed to rest on the seventh day. And so in a sense, this Sabbath principle, this command to not work on the seventh day, even before it was given, was a test. It was a test to them. God was testing them to see if they would trust that God would provide for them in the six days as opposed to the seventh. It was a test to see if they would ultimately trust in God to be the one to provide for them and not in their own work. And so rest for us as well reminds us that God provides for us. There's a great story in our Sunday school, uh, adult Sunday school class. We've been uh, around the time period, we've been doing church history, and we've been around the time period of, of uh, what is called the, the Reformation. And so you have the beginning of the Protestant churches, many Protestant churches. And there are two, well, there are lots of big players, but a couple of the guys, a couple of these big Reformation pastors and theologians, there's a great story that I'd like to share with you. One of the guys' names was Philip Melanchthon, which is kind of an odd last name, Melanchthon, Philip, he was once talking to Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of Martin Luther. He started some small denomination called the Lutherans. Um, So he was talking to his friend Philip Melanchthon one day, and uh, Philip said to Luther, this day, this day you and I, you and I will go about to discuss the governance of the universe. And so he wanted to talk to his good friend about the governance of the universe. And what Luther said in response I think probably was unexpected and a bit startling to his friend. In response, Luther said, no, this day, you and I will go fishing, and we're going to leave the governance of the universe to God. You know, I think that's what the Sabbath is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a realization that God runs the universe, that he provides for his people, that we can actually take a day and go fishing, if you'd like to go fishing. Or you can do whatever it is that you want. You can rest because God will provide for you. And so the second reason why we need regular days of rest uh, is to remind us, first of all, just of our place in the world, but secondly, to remind us that it's ultimately God who provides for you. And so let me ask you another question. What do your days of rest, or maybe your lack of days of rest, reveal about your trust in God's provision? If you do get rest or if you choose to not get rest, what does how you rest reveal about God's provision for you ultimately? Because I think, in my humble opinion, an inability to take regular days of rest reveals a lack of trust. It reveals a lack of trust. It reveals that 
you think that you are ultimately your provision and that God is not your ultimate provision. It means that you don't ultimately trust in, to, in God to provide sales for your company. You have to do it. It means that God doesn't give you the ability to work and to earn a paycheck. You actually do it. But when we heed the principle of regular days of rest, we place our faith in God, recognizing that we don't have to work every single day of the week because ultimately the provision for our needs and many of our wants comes from God. So we've seen a couple reasons. Rest reminds us of our place in the world. It reminds us that God provides for us. But thirdly, rest makes us better workers. Turn now with me a little bit ahead in the book of Exodus to Exodus 23. So skip past Exodus 20 and turn to Exodus 23. In Exodus 23, what we see is that God is going to once again give this Sabbath principle. He's going to tell his people, you need to take the Sabbath off, but he's going to expand that, and he's going to clarify, give an additional reason why regular rest is so necessary. Interestingly enough, what we see here in Exodus 23, verses 10 and 11, is that God is going to command his people agriculturally not only to take every Saturday off, he's going to tell them to take the whole seventh year off. So farmers, just think about that. If you were living under the old covenant, you would have six years in which you would, uh, you would plant and you would harvest, but on the seventh year, you would not do any of the like. You would not plant, you would not harvest, but you would let the ground go follow. So let's read that. Exodus 23, 10 through 12. For, t- for six years, you were to sow your fields and harvest your crops, but during the seventh year, let it lie unplowed and unused. He's gonna give one reason, And here it is. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So he gives the the seventh year Sabbath, but then he goes back to the seventh day Sabbath. That is, he's going to remind them why they should not work on the seventh day and give us an additional reason for regular rest. Notice verse 12. Six days you shall work. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day... Do not work so that, here's the reason, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. And so the simple principle here is that animals and workers who labored for six days were to take the day off so that they could rest so that they could be refreshed. And the simple principle, it's very simple, but it's significant, is that regular days of rest refresh us so that when we do go back to work, we work better. Does that make sense? We rest so that when it's time to work, we can work better. That's exactly what we see happening here. And I think the same is true for you and me. So let me share a quick example. Uh, Maybe in high school or maybe in college, uh, have you ever pulled what uh, we call an all-nighter? You can raise your hand. Ever done an all-nighter? Okay, for college or school, or maybe just working. You've worked all night long. Um, When I was in college, I didn't do this with much regularity, simply because I couldn't stay up all night, uh, nor did I want to. I wasn't that motivated. But there were maybe a couple, two or three occasions when I felt the necessity to stay up studying all night long, cramming for a final, cramming for a test, or whatever. And what I have found, and I think this is true for all of our work, is that when I did that, when I tried to, to, to pull this all-nighter, when I tried to work without any rest to prepare for this exam, 
it didn't really help me. It didn't really help me at all because when I was studying, I was tired and I was less productive. My brain was tired, so I retained less of what I was trying to cram in it so I could regurgitate it the next day. I was sleep deprived, so when I went to class that next morning, I had not slept at all, and so my concentration was poor. And I think the same is true of what I would call all weakers. Maybe some of you pull all weakers. That is, you don't not sleep all night, but you work all week. You work all of the time without any regular rest. The same will happen to us when we do this. If, if you do manual labor, if that's what you do as, 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 a, as a work, and you work day after day after day without any regular rest, well, what does common sense tell you will eventually happen? You'll start to feel it here, and you'll start to feel it here, and your body will hurt because it will wear down. It was not meant to do that kind of regular work. If you're, maybe you're a manager of people, you're in charge of people and accounts, your emotions will get frazzled, you'll get weary, you'll become cranky, you'll become irritable. Maybe you have a boss like that. If your work is mostly mental, maybe you produce documents or you work with numbers and you work and you work and you work and there are no days of rest, well, what will happen? You eventually will think less clearly, you'll lose concentration more easily. And of course, you'll make more mental mistakes. And so you get the point that I'm getting at. So let me ask you a question. Do you want to be the best worker that you can be? As a Christian, I think we all would say yes. We, we want to be the best worker for our company or for the co- company we work for or the best mother if we're a stay-at-home mom. We want to be the best worker, whatever it is we do, that we can be. Well, then the scripture teaches us to do that, you need regular rest. So we've seen three reasons that kind of serve as pace cars for our work. Rest reminds us of our place in the world. It reminds us that God provides for us. It makes us better workers. And fourth, rest is necessary even when it is most busiest. Rest is necessary even when it's the busiest, even when life is most hectic. So turn now with me just a few chapters towards the end of the book of Exodus, towards Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, it's kind of an odd setting. What we see there is that uh, the scene is that Moses got angry with the people of Israel, and what did he do with the Ten Commandments? You remember Charleston Heston, right? What did he do? Boom, right? And crash. So he broke the, the Ten Commandments, and so he goes back up to the mountain to get the law again from God. And so he's getting this law again, and God is essentially in chapter 34 of Exodus reminding the people of all of the festivals that they have to be involved in. But in the midst of this section, he slips in an additional reason, an additional comment about the Sabbath. And notice what he says in chapter 34 and verse 21. He says, Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And then notice the addition even during the plowing season and harvest, you must rest. Why do you think he slips this in? Why do you think that he gives this this additional comment to God's people both then and to you and I now? Why does he feel the need to let this agriculturally based society know that even during plowing and even during harvest, that they have to take the Sabbath? They are not exempt from rest, even when, for this society and this culture, it's the busiest. 
Now, many of you are involved in farming, and I know that when it becomes this time of year to plow and to plant, you're very, very busy. And when it becomes time to harvest, uh, you're very, very busy. And the same is true for all of us in various phases of life. If you own your business, uh, you know that there are certain seasons when it's really busy. Maybe uh, uh, if, if you work, like my wife, she's an accountant, and there are certain periods of, uh, of the year where she's just very busy. She's going to be more busy. I think all of us, as we think about our work, there are times when we know it's going to be hot and heavy. It's going to be really uh, time to kick into overdrive. We may work extra hours, and none of that is wrong. And yet, what does God say? Even when it's busiest— even when you are most tempted to not take regular days of rest, he tells them that they should. Now, why do you think that is? Why is that? I think, my humble opinion, is that he tells them this because when we need, when we need rest the most is when it's busiest the most, right? We often, when we feel like we can not take a break, is oftentimes the very time when we must take a break. How often is it that we neglect regular rest the most? It's when it's busy. It's during this time of life, this season of life, when we are the most busy, we tend to not rest. And yet, God tells Israel and us today by way of principle, no, even when it's busy, even when the books are getting crazy, even when there's things to do in the field, even when there are clients to be seen, even when you feel like, I can't take an hour off, I can't take a day off, God says, no, the the need is there. You must take regular rest. I want to s- close uh, by giving some practical applications. So we've seen these principles, I think, taken from the, the Old Testament Sabbath rest. I want to close with uh, about five or six suggestions, some practical suggestions uh, from a couple authors by the name of Hendricks and Sherman. They've written a book that I've quoted before called Your, Your Work Matters to God. This is what they say. This is, these are some ideas for you to jot down to begin to think about how to determine how much rest you need, what days you're going to take. So here we go. Number one, they suggest this. They say, determine how much time you need, need being the key word, determine how much time you need to spend at work. They, su- they suggest this. Ask, ask yourself, how much time is too much for you? to be at work? How much time is too much for your family to be at work? They say, consider other responsibilities and obligations. How much, how much time do you need for other responsibilities, such as time with your spouse, or time with your kids, or involvement in church, or maybe other community activities? And so they begin by simply saying, think about how much work is, how much time is needed what is needed for you to get your job done. Now, of course, that may vary from week to week, and that's fine, but they begin by just considering how much is needed to get your job done. Number two, they say, consider the impact on your family. Consider the impact on your family, and I'll quote, I find that many individuals who lose their family because of a job usually have done so not because, not because the job itself demanded an an extreme and unrealistic commitment, but because of their own ambition or drive demanded it. So, of course, we consider how much time the job needs, and we consider the needs of our family. 
Number three, they say, consider your reasons for overwork. That is, think about when you work too much, why do you work too much? Why do you put in too many hours? They say, are there legitimate, unforeseen demands? So certainly there are legitimate reasons. There are times of year, customers need you, it's busy. That's understandable and fine. There are legitimate reasons for working more. But then they suggest some others. Or is it simply because you wasted the day away in undisciplined habits, so you didn't get your job done? Is it overwork to impress a boss, to to maybe move up the corporate ladder? Do you overwork to, they suggest, avoid home responsibilities, or to avoid maybe a poor relationship with your spouse? Along those lines, I'd like to share a, a quick story. I meet with uh, Patrick Morkel almost every week, and we were talking, and he said, you know, uh, I'm not, I won't name names, but there was a relative of, of his who told him when they were about to have their firstborn child, and this, uh, this man said, oh, the, the baby's about to come. You need to get some extra hours at work, and Patrick said something along the lines of, oh, extra hours, maybe because I need more money, because kids cost a lot of money, which is reasonable, and he said, no, listen, when the baby comes, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. You're not going to want to be there at work. When the baby I- is young, you're, you're not going to want to be at work. And so pick up extra hours. Make sure that you work harder and longer to avoid being at home. And so this is what some of us do. We work hard, not because the job demands it, but maybe because we're not so tight with our spouse and we'd rather be at work than be with a relationship that we don't like. Maybe there are responsibilities at home, like lots of kids, and it's just easier to work overtime. Fourth, he says, set a general coming home time. He says, to help you know, both you know and your spouse, uh, set a general coming home time so that you know generally when you're going to be coming home and so that your family and your wife or your spouse knows when to expect you. No, of course, some jobs you don't know. You may get home at five, you may get home at seven, and, and you don't know. But he says, the best that you can, try to set a general coming home time. Number four, Number four, set a general schedule for non-work areas. Uh, He says, excuse me, schedule non-work areas just as you would work areas. How many of you do this? How many of you have conversations with your spouse about the extracurricular things that are going on this week? They suggest uh, setting aside a particular time of day during the week and talking with your spouse so that they know what you have going on and that you know what they have going on so that your schedules can mesh Uh, They say this offers, uh, quote, a real check on work that may tend to crowd out other important non-work matters. And so the point is, is that when you're checking with your spouse, the work may not be crowded out by other demands that you may have. Uh, Finally, number six, guard your use of emotional energy. I think a lot of us can relate to this. Protecting our use of our emotional energy. They say, we can leave work... We can leave work, but work never leaves us. Have you ever had that happen? You can leave work, but the work has not left you. He says, here are the danger signs when you're not emotionally detaching from your work. Number one, when your spouse tells you something and you realize you haven't heard a word they said. Has that ever happened to you? Wives, you can talk about that later uh, after, after we're done. Uh, number two, when you wake up at night with thoughts about work. And so you're up at night, you're tossing and turning because you're thinking about work. Number number three, when you spend hours on the phone with an associate after hours, knowing that you're going to have the exact same conversation tomorrow. 
Ever had that happen before? Number four, when all of your friends are work friends. Number five, when you only read about matters that pertain to work. Number six, when you spend lots of time at work not working. That is, you're spending time at work, but you're not working. And then finally, when your prayer life is centered exclusively around your work. These, I think, are five or six helpful, practical things that I hope that we can take home and congest and and think about and digest and really put into practice some of these principles. And so we're going to transition now. We're going to transition into taking uh, communion. You've noticed that the elements are out, the, the bread and the juice. Is your life like a race? Is it like the Indy 500? Is your work life in need of a pace car to kind of help set your pace? Hopefully we can allow these four principles of regular rest taken from the Sabbath to serve as kind of a pace car to help us set a good pace in work. This morning we've talked about the need for physical rest, right? That's what we've been talking about. The need that we have for regular times of a physical rest. But I want you to know that the Bible doesn't just talk about our need for physical rest. The Bible talks about our need for spiritual rest, and oftentimes the two are related. That is, we lack physical rest from overwork because we're driven to work overtime and to work more because we lack spiritual rest with God. In his book, uh, Tim Keller uh, writes this, Every Good Endeavor is the name of his book. He, He hits it on the head when he says this, All of us, to some degree, are haunted by what he calls the work under the work, that need to prove and to save ourselves, to gain a sense of worth and identity through our work. He says, we are not merely doing work that draws a salary. We are working to chase away the sense of insignificance. Is that maybe true of you? You're working not just to make a paycheck, But in a deeper sense, you have a hole in your heart and you have a need for something and so you're trying to fill it with work. In Matthew chapter 11, it's not on the screen and you don't have to go there, but in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes this connection between physical work and our deeper need, uh, excuse me, physical rest and our deeper need for spiritual rest. He uses words that normally apply to physical rest And he says that that's kind of how our soul is without a relationship with God. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, if you just read that, you would think, yeah, I work hard. I'm tired. My back hurts. I've got a hard job. I'm going to come to Jesus, and he's going to make it easier. Well, that's not the kind of rest, folks, that he's talking about. He's talking about the rest under the rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He essentially says, listen, when we uh, have a lack of soul rest, uh, we are burdened, we are uh, weary, we're spiritually he- heavy laden because we don't have a relationship with him. We know that we aren't right with God. We know that we're lacking purpose and significance and meaning in life. And we try to maybe earn his favor or, or we can't rest from this idea that somehow we know we're not right with God. But Jesus says you can have rest for your souls. Again, Keller says it nicely. But here Jesus says that we may find the rest under the rest, the R-E-M of the soul. And so before we take communion together as a church, I want to ask you, do you have the rest 
under the rest? Do you know Jesus personally as his follower, as his disciple? Have you taken his yoke? That's the image of something you put on an oxen. Have you taken his yoke upon you and found that it's not heavy, but it's, it's light, it's joyful, because following Christ is not difficult. It's enjoyable. If you have, then I want you to do this. We're going to have a, a brief time of, of reflection and of prayer. Uh, music will come on, and, and when you're prepared, if you have done this, if you have come to have this rest in your souls through faith in Christ, then I invite you to come when you're ready and, and partake in the elements, the, the bread, which helps us to remember that Jesus' body was, was, was torn for us, and the juice, which represents the wine, uh, the idea that his blood was spilt for us. We remember what Christ did for us to give us the rest under the rest, to give us the rest for our souls. But I want to say this, we're going to pray. And if you've not, if you don't know what it's like to follow Jesus and to know that it's, he's humble and he's gentle and you can find this rest for your souls, then I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now and you can come to trust in Christ personally and to know that you can have true rest. So let's pray. And then when you are prepared, if you're a, a believer in Christ, you may come. When we're done with communion, when you and your family have taken, you may leave quietly and we'll be done with our service. So let's pray. Father, I pray now for any brother or sister uh, who is uh, struggling with overwork. Father, they work too much and they don't recognize the need for regular days of rest. I pray for all of us and we all fall in this boat from time to time. Help us to recognize the utter necessity of this good gift of rest. Help us to recognize that we remember that you are in control of all things, that you provide for us, that we will be better workers when we rest, and that even when it's really busy, you want us to rest and to depend upon you. And so I pray for a man or a woman or a child who is struggling with this. Help us to be good resters. 